Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. How do you have that level of perseverance? And this is where I think it all comes together. It comes from, you know, not letting your worst day define your life. Mm -hmm. It comes from having an anchor for your soul, your faith, whatever that means to you. It comes from living that faith out in character, humility and integrity. It comes from not living your parents or friends design or uh, vision, your own vision, you know, based in your own wiring and, and design. And it comes with having a vision often uh, formed out of the ashes of your crucible that you feel will make the world a better place, that will help impact the world and uh, really help folks live a life of significance. That, friends, is Warwick describing some of the insight and inspiration he's packed into his book, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. I'm Gary Schneeberger, his co-host. If you're listening to this episode the day or soon after it goes live, Warwick's book releases in just a few days, on October 19th. If you're getting to our discussion a little later, what are you waiting for? Press pause, visit crucibleleadership.com, click on the book tab, and order your copy today. If you can't wait to read it, the good news is you don't have to wait to learn more about what's in it. Warwick talks on this week's episode about the key building blocks of the book, described by one endorser as equal parts memoir and masterclass. You'll hear helpful, hopeful details about the importance of embracing your crucible, discovering your purpose, crafting your vision, and leading and living with impact. They are all critical waypoints that will guide your journey to a life of significance. The first question I wanted to ask you so that you can sort of frame this up for listeners is that while on the back of the book here it says the sections on the on in bookstore shelves you'll find it virtual and uh, uh, brick and mortar is in uh, uh, leadership. This is not a traditional leadership book, is it? No, it's not. I mean, a lot of people write leadership books that basically look at me. I was super successful. Follow my example. And this just doesn't offer five clear linear points. It's more a collection of stories and parables anchored by my uh, my story as well as uh, the story of my dad, Sorak Fairfax, my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax, stories of historical, inspirational faith leaders. So it's really a collection of parables and stories about what it means to bounce back from your worst day from crucibles to live a life of significance. So it's not a, you know, I'm so wonderful, follow me because, you know, look how successful I am. It's it's a very different kind of leadership book. And there is an aspect, right? There is an aspect to it, not follow me, but here's the lessons I've learned. You talk about those lessons uh, and what people can learn from them so they can move beyond their own crucibles. That's a fair point, right? Absolutely. Um, a lot of it's more, you know, I made some mistakes in my young and uh, youthful, uh, naive and idealistic days. And, uh, you know, I think my motives were fine, but definitely made some mistakes. So 
a lot of it's, you know, here's some of the lessons I've learned, because I think one of our premises, when you go through a crucible, there are lessons to be learned. There are always lessons to be learned. And so um, that's a key theme of the book is, you know, learning the lessons of your crucible and seeking to found a life of significance, a, a vision for your life uh, from the ashes of that crucible. Excellent. Well, enough preamble, listener. <laughs> Let's get into the meat. And there's plenty of meat in this book. How we're going to do this, just so you know, I feel like a pastor at a sermon. I'm going to, here's here's the three <laughs> points I'm going to make, and then we make the points. We're going to go through four sections. Uh, Warwick begins the book with uh, laying out four sections of the book. The sections are, I'm going to give you all the sections, and then we're going to break into and talk about each section individually. Uh, the first section is to uh, embrace your crucible. The second section, part two, discover your purpose. Third section, craft your vision. Uh, fourth section, live and lead with impact. And, and what we're going to do as we draw through this, this, this outline is Warwick's going to talk a little bit about not just what's in the book, but what his, his story was, his own crucible experience that led to him writing the book, and some of the lessons that he's learned from family members, in some cases, some of the lessons learned from some of history's greatest leaders. It's, it's going to really be a, it, it's not quite an audio book, although there is one of those coming. It, it's not quite a, uh, a documentary about the book, but it's going to give you a, a really good grounding in what the book's about so that um, uh, when the book comes out, you'll have an idea uh, one week from today, if you're listening on the day that this goes live, one week from today the book is out, it'll give you a grounding to know what it is you're going to get. So let's start, Warwick, with um, uh, part one, which I remember early on when uh, we were working together and, and uh, you know, you, the manuscript was coming through the process and I was looking at it and uh, embrace your crucible. I'm like, wow. That's like embrace barbed wire for some people, right? I mean, I I think of my crucibles as like I don't want to put my arms around that, but but the idea of embrace your crucible. Why is it that it's not just survive your crucible, hold your breath and get through it? But the idea about embracing your crucible. What is the benefit, the need, the necessity of that? Yeah, I'm just thinking about the image you mentioned. Embrace barbed wire. I mean, hug it. I mean, yeah, it does sound. So strange, and that's not a bad metaphor because um, crucibles, I mean, literally, it's like molten metal heated to a very high temperature that forms something new. Well, crucibles are always painful. It could be your fault, not your fault. Uh, on our uh, podcast, Beyond the Crucible, we've had every kind of crucible from people being paralyzed, uh, abuse, business failure, and uh, it's always painful, but Really, what we talk about here uh, at Crucible Leadership is um, you have a choice. With a Crucible experience, you can either hide under the covers and say, this wasn't fair, this wasn't right, this is so painful, I'm just going to lie here for the next 30, 40, 50 years until life inevitably ends. Or you can say, this was awful, painful, but how can I move forward? And ultimately, a key premise of the book is how can I move forward and live a life of significance, a life on purpose, dedicated to serving others. So really, a crucible provides the ultimate inflection point. Do you give up on life or do you continue and try to find good, try to find purpose and meaning out of that pain? And so that's really, it's a binary choice that, that all of us face. And that... It it's interesting that you just talked about 
you know, crucibles, what they are, why you have to learn from them, how you learn from them a little bit. And we'll unpack that a lot, listener, as we go on. But you also talked at the end there about the goal is a life of significance. And it, it occurs to me that Warwick's sort of just done what you're not supposed to do with a book, right? He's flipped to the back pages, <laughs> and, uh, you know, to let you know what the ending is. And the ending is, here's your life of significance. That's what, that's your goal. The end game of moving beyond your crucible is to move into a life of significance. So that's the arc that we're going to discuss today. That's the arc Warwick's lived. That's the arc many of our guests have lived. And it's certainly the arc of the book. So uh, by way of getting us started here in, the, in, in sort of the, the, the digging in the dirt of, of, of what happened uh, in, in your life, what was your crucible? Tell listeners um, a little bit about how you got introduced to the idea of crucibles in a very painful personal way. Yes, I uh, went through my own uh, very public crucible. So um, I grew up in a 150-year-old family media business in Australia founded by my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax, who I'll chat about in a moment. Uh, but by the time I grew up, this had grown into a very large media company. It had uh, magazines, newspapers, TV stations, radio stations. It had the Australian equivalent of the uh, New York Times, Washington Post, and Wall Street Journal, a mammoth company. So um, I was the fifth generation, and... Um, uh, by the time I came around, I was seen as the heir apparent, a little bit like the royal family, as I sometimes think. You know, I had about as much choice of not to go into it as Prince William does of right, saying right. to his grandmother or dad, oh, "I don't think this is for me." I mean, it's no. Uh, so I uh, spent my growing up preparing myself, undergrad at Oxford, like my dad had some relatives, Wall Street, Harvard Business School. Came back in 87. My dad died in early 87. He was, I was from his third marriage. He was in his 80s. Launched this $2.25 billion takeover. Stop for a second and repeat <laughs> that number and make sure people heard 2.25 what? Billion. It's unfortunately with a B, uh, 2.25 yes, okay. billion. Uh, and so I say unfortunately because things went wrong from the start. Other family members sold out. They didn't want to be in a privatized company controlled by a 26-year-old, which I think, I guess, makes sense. Uh, three years later, the debt was so high that when Australia got in a big recession, the company went bankrupt. So I was trying to preserve it uh, in the image of the founder, uh, have it be well-managed, stop it being taken over by corporate raiders. And what I did directly led to it falling out of family hands. So that, in a nutshell, is my crucible. Right. Now, there are myriad reasons why that could be painful. One is that word that starts with a B. Others are um, emotional, right? We have, we have seen on this show, we've heard on this show from guests who have experienced both, who have experienced financial setbacks, um, not quite at the level that you have experienced them, but also the emotional setbacks. And one of the things I say all the time as the co-host of the show is, okay, guest C, um, your crucible is nothing like, your, your physical crucible is nothing like what Warwick's gone through, but the emotions are the same. And emotionally, right, you've said many times, emotionally it was harder than what happened to you financially. Can you explain just a little bit about what happened to you emotionally and in public and, and, and how that kind of affected you? Yeah, I mean, fair point. I mean, obviously this was major news. It was the front covers of all newspapers. There was a headline saying, you know, Banks and Fairfax era. There was Savage editorial cartoons. 
my wife's American, and which was fortunate at the time. So we left Australia in uh, late 1990 and have lived in the U.S. ever since. So I felt like I couldn't move on with my life in Australia. And wh- the issue wasn't so much the, the massive sum of money that uh, I guess I lost. It was more just the sense I let my parents down, uh, ancestors, uh, we had 4,000-plus employees. It was like a $700 million company. Now, they didn't lose their jobs, per se, um, but it it was more just instability. Who's going to buy us? What's going to happen? Right. And, you know, so my self-esteem was crushed. And because the founder was a strong person of faith, as I am, I felt like God had this vision to, res- you know, me to resurrect the company in the image of the founder, have at least be run along his principles. So I felt like there was almost this divine crucible that I'd let God down. So really, it it just devastated my sense of self and, and self esteem. So uh, yeah, that was the bit, that was the hardest part of my crucible. Here's the good news, listener. We've we've gotten to the point where we're we're not we're sort of done talking about the negative pain parts of things, and now we're going to turn a little bit because the purpose of the book, right, is not as I say on the podcast, as we say on the podcast every week. It's not to sort of wallow in those things that happen, and there's no wallowing here. Warwick does talk in his book about what he he went through, and will and will go through sort of the emotional beats and also the. Um, the the what he did for a living beats those kinds of things that happen the self esteem beats but really Warwick what you talk about the idea of embracing your crucible is that from embracing your crucible you pick up you learn some things that are important in guiding you on the journey back from your crucible. So I'm just going to throw out a couple of words to you that you discuss in kind of the first section of the book and let you kind of pick which ones you want to talk about. You talk about the importance of having an anchor for your soul, having something outside yourself that's that's firm, that's bedrock, so that you, when the winds come and it feels like you're getting blown over, you got something to hang on to. And you talk about the power, the, the necessity of authenticity. The worst thing you can do in the wake of a crucible is to pretend it didn't happen, stick your head in the ground, you know, just everything's fine and dandy. We've all heard stories about that, right? The person who, you know, rents the the big expensive car and they're and they're trying to project a guest we just had recently, Dove Barron, called it an Instagram life. You don't want to do that. You want to live authentically. So explain a little bit from your perspective, you know, what why is it important have an anchor, pursue authenticity, pick one of those two words that you think is most important for people to know? And again, the whole thing is unpacked in the book. Yeah. I mean, the whole concept of find an anchor for your soul, I really I think of this image of you're on a ship and there's just a massive gale, there's huge storms, and you got to cling to something. You, you know, you dig your fingernails into the, you know, the wooden mast sort of a sailing ship and you know, what's the anchor that's going to get you through the storm of your crucible? And for me, it's my faith and faith in Christ. It could be faith in something else, which will, more broader, which we'll get into. But you've, you've got to find, you know, amidst the storm, amidst almost this uh, whirlpool, you've got to find a, an anchor and, and find a way just to keep being yourself. Don't like fake it till you make it kind of thing. It's just you know, uh, be real. Don't pretend I'm I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm good. It's like, you know, you don't have to get into every detail with with people, but um, you know, be real. But yeah, I mean, you've amidst the storm, you've got to find an anchor for your soul. Otherwise, you'll get sucked into a vortex, and uh, you know, you won't escape. 
So it, it's a, it's like a lifeline. It's critical to, to find that anchor, whatever that means to you. Yeah. And what you just said, in addition to finding that anchor, uh, you know, be you, right? And that's the importance right. of authenticity, which is extraordinarily mm-hmm. important as well. Um, one of the things I love about the book, Warwick, is that um, it, it really is, it's a it's three strands, in essence. There's your story. Uh, there's a bit of memoir to it, uh, what you went through. Uh, there's uh, the, the principles that you learned from that. And then there are that other people can learn from as well, that you impart to people to help them on their journeys. And then you tell some stories of family members uh, of sometimes historical and and religious figures, spiritual figures. As you think about this idea of embracing your crucible uh, as a means of starting a journey to get you to a life of significance, uh, you talk about finding an anchor, you talk about authenticity. Is there a story? There are many. We don't have time, unfortunately, to unpack every one of them by the book, and you can do that. Uh, listener, you can read every one of those stories. But is there a story that that, that comes to mind to you, Warwick, when, about what we've just been talking about, what you've just been unpacking? Yeah, there is. I mean, I think about the life of John Fairfax, who, um, you know, a man of great faith, and he had his own crucible in which he made a choice not to let it defeat him or define him. And let me stop just for a second to say John uh, Fairfax, for people who do not know, is your great-great-grandfather, the founder Indeed. of the company. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, he came out from England in the late uh, 1830s to Australia. And the crucible that drove him out was he had a small paper in England and he wrote an article about a local magistrate, uh, yeah, a local lawyer, and the lawyer sued him twice. Now, the judge found in John Fairfax's favor saying, look, the article was was accurate, but the court costs ended up bankrupting him. So the, the, the judge said, yep, what you said was right, but he was so fed up with the whole thing, he decided to leave England. Uh, he was bankrupted by the whole thing and moved to Australia. You know, he ended up buying a um, uh, into the Sydney Morning Herald in 1841 and it ended up growing into a huge company. So, you know, he didn't let that setback define him. He was willing to um, to move forward, and uh, he had this vision of a newspaper that would be independent, that, you know, its masthead was, may Whigs call me Tory, Tory call me Whig, which basically in modern language, may conservative call me liberal, liberal call me conservative. So he had this vision of an independent paper that would help, um, you know, grow the young colony of Australia. So, uh, he did not let his, as we say, his his own worst day of being bankrupted in England define his life. He cho- chose to move forward. It's a tremendous example of embracing a crucible. Yeah, and uh, and the generations that it affected after that, the legacy that came from that, the legacy you're still living is 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 a remarkable one. Okay, there's section one of what we're talking about about embracing your crucible. Okay, not, I've done that, says the listener. I've, I've embraced it. I'm trying to learn lessons from it. What then happens after that? And the second section that we talked about that the book deals with 
is discovering your purpose. You mentioned earlier, Warwick, that um, the, you felt like the purpose you inherit that you inherited your purpose from your great great grandfather and your forebearers after that. This section of the book, uh, fascinating, and the, and there again, here are some subjects that uh, come up in there: humility, integrity, um, servant leadership, self sacrifice. Uh, character. You talk about those things in great detail, why they're important, why they were important to you, uh, why they were important to uh, your family members, your father and your great-great-grandfather in particular. But one of the, th but, but what you really kind of pull on and focus on in that section is faith. I know it's important to you to explain not only how faith helped you, but what you mean when you, when you share that with people who are coming through a crucible, when you talk about the importance of, of having faith, you talked earlier about an anchor to hold on to. For you, it's faith. Uh, you believe it's faith in, in a general sense for others. Ex unpack that a little bit from your perspective and then from the perspective that you try to coach people on. Yeah, it's a good question, Gary. I mean, basically, it sort of fleshes out this concept to find an anchor for yourself. You know, I talk about in the book faith in a general sense. I mean, I'm clear about my own uh, Christian faith, which there was a legacy of that in my family going back to my great-great-grandfather, John Fairfax. For me, uh, it was through an evangelical Anglican church when I was at Oxford University where I committed my life to Christ, so to speak. But in, in I'm a, as we'll get into, I'm an executive coach at heart and uh, by profession. So I believe everybody has the God-given right, so to speak, to choose their own path. So when I say faith, everybody has to find their path, find their anchor. So it could be a major religion, such as you know Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, uh, Hinduism. It could be a philosophy, a, uh, you know, a set of values and beliefs. We all have values and beliefs. So whatever that is, don't ignore that. Don't ignore what you believe. And I'm not telling you what it should be. You have to figure that out for yourself. It's your your right to find your path. So whatever that is. You're, you're, you're way back from your crucible, your way forward in life to lead a joy, joyful and filling life of significance is based on that anchor, based on uh, whatever your values and beliefs. So it's really important. It's not about listening to other people. It's more listen to yourself, listen to your soul, live in light and in harmony with your soul of who you truly are. All right, I'm getting back to my uh, embracing my co-host responsibilities, um, and we're going to mash up two game shows here. We're going to mash up uh, mm. The Price is Right, where we're going to spin a wheel for something. Um, mm. uh, so you can pick a story, spin the wheel and pick a story, sure. and then we'll do it um, a little bit with like the fast money round in Family Feud so we can get it done in about two or three minutes. So what, what story uh, in your book really had the most impact on you in writing and in telling that? that you think will be instructive for readers? Yeah, in terms of the whole discover your purpose, George Washington, the first president of the United States, he was called an indispensable man of character. One of the themes in this section of the book, true faith has its outworking in how you live, humility, integrity. Mm -hmm. It's, yep. you know, if it doesn't manifest itself in how you live, then what use is it? You know, frankly, you know, it's got to work. What's the fruit of what you say you believe, right? Exactly, exactly right. And so he was called by some pretty amazing uh, contemporaries 
uh, George III, who, you know, he defeated. George III of England said he must be the greatest man in the world. Napoleon, after he was exiled on the island of Elba, said they wanted me to be another Washington. Well, why did they say that? Because, um, you know, really, uh, at the height of his power, he, he gave it up voluntarily in like 1783, uh, Treaty of Paris, you know, Britain recognized U.S. independence. There was a bunch of generals in the so-called Newburgh conspiracy that said, hey, General Washington, you know, we don't think we've been uh, treated fairly. You know, our pay has been locked up in politics and Congress. You know, it's funny, politics existed even back then. And, you know, life <laughs> it was is, dirtier back then. Yeah. It was even dirtier. Yeah, bureaucracy. And, and so he said, look, this is not what we're about. We didn't fight this war for me to be a dictator. And so then later on in 1783, at the then, believe it or not, capital of the United States, or what would be Annapolis, which is where I live in Maryland, coincidentally, he, nice. he basically said, I retire from the theater of action. He just, you know, said, I'm going to go back to, you know, Virginia. And uh, he had no intention of ever being in public life. That's why George III called him the greatest man in history. Now, as it happened, uh, the country wasn't done with him. And so in 789, he was elected president by the Electoral College unanimously, the only president to receive 100% of the vote. Doubt that will ever happen again. And so, no. you know, so why, why was he elected by everybody? Because of his character. He wasn't a military genius. He lost more battles than he won. But he was a man of immense character. He truly lived his beliefs. So it's just an incredible example of a person, you know, walking the talk. So Yeah. And what I love about what you just said before we move on to the next section is that when we started to talk about discover your purpose, we talked about some of the building blocks of faith of uh, of what we're talking about. We talked about humility, integrity, servant leadership. I just listed them off. Self-sacrifice, character. What you just described about Washington in that very short story hit on all of those, right? Absolutely. It, it, it checks all of those boxes. I mean, those are the things, you know, it, it, it's, it was funny to me as you were talking about what people said about what his contemporaries, even those, not, not, he didn't just defeat George. The, he, he, like, sep his country separated, like, he separated yeah. from his country. He, like, left. Right. He, he broke yeah. off. Um, I'd love to see if LinkedIn was around at the time, the recommendations that would be on George <laughs> Washington's LinkedIn page. That would be fascinating. <laughs> Next, we're going to move on to the third section of the book, which is craft your vision. Vision's an important word. Craft's an important word in that section, craft your vision. But I think the most important word, would you agree, is your right? Because you can craft a vision that somebody else says you can craft a vision. You think the world needs it, but Talk about why it's so critical to craft your own vision uh, and then how you did that in your own life. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, you can't inherit a vision. I mean, it's, it's often in families, maybe your mom or dad was a lawyer, a banker, accountant, doctor, whatever. It's like, well, you know what? This is a good business. It's a good way of making a livelihood. I can get you in. I, I'm certainly networked in my profession. And there's some logic there. But what happens if you don't have the innate wiring to uh, be a doctor or a lawyer? Maybe that's not your passion. Maybe you just want to paint. Maybe you right. want to play music. Maybe you love math. You know, maybe you, you kind of want to be an engineer. I mean, it's, you know, it's not about just following what your family or friends say is logical. 
you want to live in light of your design and have a vision that you care about. And I was, in a sense, the poster child of, uh, of in a sense, what not to do in that growing up in this 150-year-old family business, a bit like the royal family, it was, as they say in the U.S. military, sort of a duty on a country thing. Like, I felt like I had no choice. So I spent my whole life trying to prepare myself to one day take a leading position. As I mentioned, you know, Oxford, Wall Street, Harvard Business School. Not because I was that, you know, I was passionate about going to business school. It was all about fulfilling a role. And so when the whole company went under, it's like, well, now what do I do with my life? I was age 30 and it's like, I had no clue. It took me years, which is a whole nother story to find, to, to find out. But you don't want to live somebody else's vision. You can't inherit a vision. Uh, you have really the God-given right to follow your own path, live your own life. Doesn't doesn't mean dishonoring your parents and friends. Be you. Be real. Be authentic. F- follow your own vision. There are a couple of things you say in the book, um, and this would be a good time since we're probably about halfway through the episode to do a public service announcement. Here is the book, if you're watching on YouTube, it's Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance by Warwick Fairfax, out October 19th. Um, Can be purchased at uh, where all um, great books are sold online. Uh, You can also go to crucibleleadership.com. We have a tab on the book, give you a lot of details, including the astounding number, uh, I can say that, you can't, uh, you won't, uh, the astounding number of endorsements of people who have said things that they love about this book, including Nancy Kane, who's a uh, professor at Harvard Business School, who said that you weave together history and his own fascinating life experience to offer a series of vital leadership insights. Whether you're responsible for a company, a foundation, an arts organization, or a government agency, you will find nuggets of leadership gold in this book. That is just one of 29 endorsements um, that you'll find on the website. You'll find many of them in the book. Um, I say all that not to embarrass Warwick, but to but to frame the book that we're talking about here in a way that you will understand that that, that truly it's not just me. Uh, who thinks it's a great book, or, or Warwick, who thinks it was a worthwhile book to publish. Lots of people who have, who have read this book have, uh, have great things to say about it. So back to our programming. Um, you say a couple things, Warwick, about crafting your vision that I think are really interesting for this discussion. One, you say the seed, and they're connected. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you the question and ask you to talk about them at the same time. You say that the, the seeds to your vision, your unique vision are within. So unpack that a little bit. And then you also define vision, uh, is defined in the book as a present picture of a future reality. Talk about how those two things kind of go together. Seeds of your vision are within, and it's and a vision is a present picture of a future reality. Yeah, I mean, I think often the seeds of your vision can come from the ashes of your crucible. You may be, uh, maybe you're a cancer survivor, victim of abuse, and you might be, you know, I never want anybody to go through what I went through. I want to help others. A vision needs to be anchored in your design, which from my perspective, divine designs, whether you love art, math, science, whatever it is, you know, it's really a combination of your inherent wiring plus, you know, crucibles often where vision lies, not always, but it has to be something that you're off the charts passionate about. And from my perspective, vision has to be others-focused. It can't be all about money, power, fame, uh, some narcissistic internal 
kind of deal. Because you'll, you know, every psychologist, every religion, to my knowledge, will say that does not lead to happiness or joy or fulfillment. Right. It has to, you know, be others focused, a life of significance, a life on purpose, dedicated to serving others. So really, the seeds of your vision sort of are found within, in that sense, and. You know, you know when you have a good vision when uh, you can feel it, taste it, touch it. You dream about it. When I think of John Fairfax, he was um, kind of head of a local library there, and he and a buddy of his who would have found the company, they talked about this plan, the plan, and they had a vision of what the Sydney Morning Herald that they were to buy was going to be like. They they knew what they wanted to do. They had a dream. They had a vision. It was so compelling, they probably had trouble sleeping at night. So that's a great vision in which you can just feel it, picture it, smell it, touch it. You just, and it's just, it's it's compelling. It just drives you forward. That's when you know you've got a great vision. So how did Warwick Fairfax, post takeover failing, find the seeds of his vision within? And as you, indi- as you, as you teased a little bit, it wasn't overnight. Right. We had a guest on the show during our Harnessing Resilience series, Heather Camp, who found, you know, who found her uh, resilience in like five seconds after she fell on a track, got up and finished the race and won. It took you a little longer. It takes a lot of people a little longer. It can take time to find the seeds of your vision within and act on them. So what was that process like for you? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes, I mean, you know, typically it's not overnight. And for me, it was... Steps of faith, really. Um, uh, steps of, from my perspective, trying to hear, you know, the Lord, some higher power, just step by step. So the first step was uh, I worked in an aviation services company in Annapolis doing finance and business analysis. From there, I felt like, you know, from my perspective, God telling me, you know what, you, you're not using all your gifts and abilities. You're playing small. Nothing wrong with what I was doing. But I just felt like there was more. And so whether you think it's God or some inner voice within yourself, whatever your perspective is, one big lesson, listen to that voice, listen to that gut, yes, get advice from trusted folks. So I ended up leaving that company, uh, going into executive coaching after a mid-career executive coach gave me an assessment. I began to find my leadership voice in the questions and step by step, I ended up being on a couple of nonprofit boards that was a good fit. And then Talk in Church, which is another pivotal moment we'll get to, I think, you know, later. But it, and eventually that led to Crucible Leadership, the podcast, the book, blogs. But it wasn't like this grand plan. I think that's one of the pe- things that people need to understand. And, you know, we'll, we'll sort of unpack it a bit more in uh, example of Walt Disney here in a moment. That's a tremendous example of what I'm talking about. Uh, but, you know, you might have a sense, but you don't always have this grand plan all laid out. Just focus on what's the next best step for me now? What do I feel within myself I need to be called at? And that's that's key to, you know, beginning to walk, walk your vision out and make it make it happen. It's a unique kind of GPS, isn't it? It, it knows the destination, a life of significance, kind of knows where you're at coming out of your crucible, but it doesn't necessarily give you all the turns. <laughs> turn on this street, turn on that street. You have to kind of, it's a journey. We call it a journey for a reason because you have to work that out. I mean, it, it might tell you what 
street to turn on when you're like, I don't know, 100 foot or maybe 10 foot away, maybe. <laughs> right. But okay, what's the next turn after that? Not telling you. Yeah, <laughs> you know? right. Life tends to be, you know, you could debate philosophically, theologically why that's the case, but it just kind of is, basically. Yeah. You mentioned uh, that Walt Disney is going to come up. Before we get there, I want to to ask you a question about vision um, in in the context of the workplace, in the context of leadership. A lot of what we've been talking about, and as we said at the start, the book's, you know, uh, it's a leadership book. There's also a bit of not uh, not in love with the term can't think of a better one a bit of self help mm-hmm. you know a built of a, a bit of 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 self management and then there's also some faith components to it but from the business a purely business perspective the idea of having a vision you have this great thing you talk about about sh- the importance of sharing your vision with your team as a leader and ways in which you can do that and some compromises maybe you have to make some some sacrifices, maybe a better word you have to make to do that. Unpack that a little bit. Yeah, one of the images we use in the book is Michelangelo's statue of David that's in Florence that a few years ago I actually had the uh, pleasure of seeing. And you think of your vision as like that, it's perfection. But you've got to give people the hammer and chisel, uh, which when you think your vision is perfection is tough. But kind of what we say in the book is... um, you know, 80% of your vision that has 100% commitment is better than 100% of your vision with zero commitment. So you've got to be willing to share, to take input. We talk in that section, which we don't have time to get into, but listening and advising, listening from a broad cross-section of folks, listening to a few on your team or some advisors outside. But, you know, really to craft a great vision, you've got to be willing to let others play. You can't right. just hold the ball in, in, in the playground and, and not share because, A, it won't happen. But even in this stage, you're, there are other people that can make your vision better. It's not this narcissistic, it's all got to be mine. If you truly believe in your vision, why wouldn't you want other people to help it make it better? You know, it's just logical, but you, know, you just got to, if you're other focused, others focused, you'll do that. Warning, warning, danger. Uh, I'm about to embarrass Warwick um, because one of the things that you talked about earlier, right, is the importance of authenticity. And what you just described is what you do as the the head of Crucible Leadership. Those of us on the team, we have input into the vision. I'll give you an example of yesterday. Um, yesterday, we're talking about uh, some aspect of, of the audio book. And I, you know, here's the cover of what it looks like. And I, you know, there's like eight people on the email. I chime in and say, hey, why don't we put a, uh, an endorsement on there? And Warwick's like, well, okay, I don't know. I, I kind of like it looking cleaner that way. And so I bring it up again. And, and you know, Warwick, listen to it again. Later on, here's what even members of the team don't know. Later on, Warwick texts me and uh, says that he asked another member of the team about it. He didn't in other words, he didn't just go, okay, I've already said no twice. He went and explored it. He was willing to to expand his vision a little bit if that increased buy-in. And that's the kind of stuff that, again, my job is to point out this book, Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance, is available starting October 19th. Warwick indicated there's some stories we can't get into here in the podcast, but he gets into all of them in here. Can't encourage you enough to dig in and get those. Tell us, 
in the time we have left in this segment, Warwick, about uh, Mr. Disney and his vision. You know, Walt D Disney, it was a great visionary, but I think it's important, you know, everybody knows the movies, Walt, Dis you know, Walt Disney World, Disneyland, you know, in the late 20s, as he was starting, he didn't have this big grand vision. You know, he loved cartoons, animation. That was his passion. He didn't know where it was all going to lead. But he was somebody that he didn't really let failure overwhelm him. So one key early moment is he was in New York in 1928 and a distributor of his uh, cartoons, which back then was Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, which likely nobody's ever heard of, and there's a reason. Right. The distributor swindled him out of his cartoon. There was some fine print. You know, Walt was an animator, not a lawyer. And so here he is going back with his wife, Lily, on the train to California. Because remember, this is late 20s and you didn't fly there from one coast to the other back then, not easily. And rather than being de depressed, he started, you know, doodling on a, on a napkin uh, some circles and he drew a mouse. And that became uh, Mickey Mouse. Now, nobody's ever heard of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, but everybody's I've, heard of Mickey, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, I was going to say, I've heard, a, I've heard a thing or two about this mouse character. <laughs> yeah. And so he was just the serial visionary. I mean, you know, in like 1937, I think it was, he created Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, an hour and a half animated movie, color movie. Everybody thought, called it Disney's Folly. It'll never work. It'll hurt your eyes. Nobody will sit through an hour and a half cartoon. Are you crazy? But they did. He pretty much bet the farm on that one. Later on in like the 50s, he created Disneyland in Los Angeles. Again, people thought, this is nuts. It was very expensive. Amusement parks then were kind of dirty places that weren't clean. A place for family and you're going to have a cover charge? It'll never work. And so he had this attitude of, um, of, of vision. There's this quote that he said that I think is very on, on point. Walt Disney famously said this. It's kind of fun to do the impossible. And that <laughs> Say that was, again. That, Say that again. It's kind of fun to do the impossible. So that yeah. was Walt Disney. He didn't have this big plan to create, you know, when he was in 1928 to create Disneyland, still less Disney World. But he just, step by step, he had this gut instinct. He trusted himself. And he never gave up. He did not let, you know, that guy swindling him out of Oswald the, the Lucky Rabbit define his life. That could have been his worst day in his life at the time. You know, I mean, did he wallow for hours, months? No, on the train back, he moved on and created Mickey Mouse. I mean, who does that? I mean, that's why he's such a great visionary. He did not let someone swindling him out of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit be the end of his story. And you, Warwick, did not let the failed takeover of the family media business be the end of your story. The fourth section that we're going to talk about from the book, the fourth section of the book, is to live and lead with impact. And this is really really focused on organizational leaders, how they do it, how they inspire, how they achieve, and why that's important. Resilience is key. You've certainly manifested that. Um, as you've indicated, it wasn't two weeks from the takeover to today, several, it was a couple of decades. Um, unpack for listeners this live and lead with impact and, and why persistence, resilience is such a key component of it. 
You know, it is. And I want to kind of feed some of the strands of what we've been talking about into this because perseverance is key because life is hard. You know, life sadly is not Disneyland where every flower is perfect, everything's <laughs> clean. Everybody loves Disneyland. It just seems just so perfect. Well, life isn't like that, unfortunately. We have moments, we have days, but uh, life is tough. And so, You've got to persevere as Walt Disney did. He didn't let, you know, this distributed swindling amount of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit get him down. And so how do you have that level of perseverance? And this is where I think it all comes together. It comes from, you know, not letting your worst day define your life. Mm -hmm. It comes from having an anchor for your soul, your faith, whatever that means to you. It comes from living that faith out in character, humility, and integrity. It comes from not living your parents' or friends' design or uh, vision, your own vision, you know, based in your own wiring and, and design. And it comes with having a vision often uh, formed out of the ashes of your crucible that you feel will make the world a better place, that will help uh, impact the world and uh, really help folks live a life of significance. You have those things all things being equal, you will have a lot of perseverance. It's like, hey, this is too important. This is too important to fail. This is about helping people. This is about uh, freeing people's souls. You know, we're just going to keep going. And you'll also find, as we say, a group of fellow travelers. You'll have people that who've embraced that vision and say, you know what? I'm with you. You know, we're in it. And they'll have different uh, skills than you will, different talents, but you have a team that are as if not more committed to your vision than you. And so combination of perseverance and a talented team that you empower, you get out of the way, you don't step on their toes in their areas of expertise, you provide guidance. All of that fuels a perseverance to succeed. But, you know, it, it, all these strands form, you know, if you, have, if you have a vision that's just anchored in your narcissistic needs for wealth or, you know, self-adulation, that, in my view, will not you, that will not you know have staying power for the long run. It uh, it's hard to persevere, and certainly, who would want to follow some narcissistic, self-important you know uh, self-appointed king? Nobody's going to want to follow that. You know, it'd be you'll be alone in your mansion high atop the hill, and you know you just don't want to live that life. You know, as Thoreau says, a life of quiet desperation. You don't want to be that person, but. Perseverance is really the key as it pulls together the other strands to leading and living with impact. What I loved about what you just said, Warwick, is not, it's the words you said, it's the things you said, it's the concepts you imparted to the listener, because they're extraordinarily important. But what I love most about what you just said is the passion in your voice when you said it. You describe yourself often. You did it in this show, I believe, early on. You're a reflective advisor. You're soft-spoken. You're, you're, um, you're even-keeled when you speak. I don't know that I've ever heard you speak with as much passion as what you just did in summarizing um, what is in that book. And that is, uh, I mean, I, I'm not making this up. I've got like tingles as I, as I hear that because that is you. 
rooting around in your life of significance. You just talked about people who, the sadness of living a life of quiet desperation. What I just heard there is a man who's living a life of loud significance. And that is, uh, is, is extraordinarily rewarding for me as your friend. And I hope, I pray, extraordinarily helpful for listeners who hear it. We have talked in each one of these sections about uh, a story. And this was a funny one because as we were talking about this beforehand, I'm like, you're going to have a hard time picking what story you're going to talk about (laughs) because some of your favorite people are in here, right? In the book, in the book, you talk about Nelson and Wellington, British, uh, you know, military leaders. You talk about Lincoln, uh, you know, you talk about that stuff. But uh, David, you talk about David from the Bible. But the one that you wanted to camp on here, also a big hero of yours, and I think that's a great place to, to sort of wrap this discussion the captain is 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 put on the fastened seatbelt signs and it's getting time to land the plane and we're about to do that. But talk about the persistence, the resilience, and the impact it made of Winston Churchill. Yeah, I mean, everybody's heard of Winston Churchill, but he's a fascinating guy. He was the uh, grandson of the Duke of Marlborough, you know, one of the famous aristocratic families. And, you know, he did not have an easy life his his father didn't believe him at all. He just basically thought of his son as a waste of space. And his father died, you know, young for a variety of reasons. So, you know, there wasn't, you know, I think his mother probably, you know, back in those days, you didn't see a whole lot of your parents if you were the son of a an aristocracy. So I'm not sensing there was a whole lot of affirmation, but yet he had this persistence, this sense that... Um, uh, he could be become somebody and live a meaningful life. And so uh, in the 20s, um, he was called the star of the government by then Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin. His wilderness years began from about 1929 and then a couple of years on. He lost a lot of money in the stock market crash. He was uh, hit by a car in New York City in 1931 looking the wrong way, which I guess happens if you're English uh, in New York <laughs> living in America. Right. Right. And so uh, he made a number of political mistakes, which he tended to, he, you know, let his mouth run away with him. And so come the 1930s, uh, Nazi Germany was on the rise and pacifism, whether it was in Britain and America, was at its height. But Churchill could see that, you know, you can't trust Adolf Hitler, you can't trust Nazi Germany. And they all said, oh, you know, poor old Winston, warmonger, and they wouldn't listen. I mean, it it was immensely frustrating. He could have said, look, you know, to heck with these guys. If they're so stupid to ignore Nazi Germany, let it be on their heads. But he didn't give up. He kept giving speech after speech after speech. Well, finally, as Hitler wore on and took over Czechoslovakia in 1938 and then Austria, people began to say, you know what? Maybe Winston's right. Maybe we can't trust this guy Hitler in Nazi Germany. Maybe they won't just leave us alone. And finally, as we know, war broke out in 1939 and eventually, uh, by then he was getting older, Churchill was voted as prime minister in May 1940. So after many years in the wilderness, finally he came. And never once was he vindictive. He treated his uh, the people that came before him, prime ministers Chamberlain and Bolden, with respect. There was not a bitter bone in his body. But that sense of perseverance was so much a part of him, if ever a country needed perseverance as Britain in the in 1940 with Battle of Britain 
America wasn't in the war. All of Europe was conquered by Nazi Germany. And he gave this famous speech that inspired a nation to persevere, to, ha- to, to hang in there. And he uses these immortal wor- words um, in 1940. He, he gave this speech, and it says this, We shall not flag or fail. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. And we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. So that's pure Churchill. That's pure perseverance. And um, he helped a nation persevere under the darkest of times. So he had a life grounded in perseverance and he inspired a nation to have perseverance with his rhetoric and his example. It's true inspiration of somebody that uh, never gave up and never just gave in when life was looking grim personally and for his country. With that story, the spitfire has landed. <laughs> well done. <laughs> the spitfire has landed. Um, and what I love about what you just said at the end is that it's a great bridge to our next episode. Because everything that you just described about Winston Churchill, never giving up, not allowing uh, what his crucibles that he went through to be the end of his story. It's not only what the podcast is about that we do every week, but it's what the podcast is going to be about next week. Because next week is the day, next week, that when the when next week's episode goes live, it is the day that the book goes live. That book, in case you missed it the first 127 <laughs> times I mentioned it in this episode, is Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. And what we're going to talk about on next week's episode, Warwick, is sort of the other half of this story. We've talked today about the content of this. What we're going to talk about next week on the day that the book releases is the publishing journey that you went through where you had to, in a very real way, um, live by the words that's, that that Churchill spoke. Never give up, never surrender, keep moving forward. Um, where you had to find your vision and craft it, and you had to put it into practice, and you had to... It, it, it's the journey of you following... It's It'll be an interesting show. It will be an unpacking of the journey of you following to write the book, everything that's in the book. So I can't wait for that conversation. That will be uh, that will be an an interesting one for sure. As we close, I'm gonna change things up. I'm not gonna do my usual post amble. I guess I'd call it. I'm just gonna say this: uh, we talked in this episode about uh, the contents of crucible leadership, embrace your trials to lead a life of significance, and one of the things that, what sticks out top of mind for me is Warwick talked about. If you if you live in your crucible, if you don't move beyond your crucible, if you if you wallow in your crucible, if you try to craft a vision that's not uniquely you, if you're doing things that, that aren't in line with your gifts and passions and those things, and you're and you're aiming for something besides significance, you end up living a life of quiet desperation. What you've heard here today, listener, what we hope we've inspired you to do is to live a life of loud significance. We will see you next week 
to talk about how the book Crucible Leadership came to be. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.